Let's talk numbers. Two, the number of people it took to exchange their genetic loading and love, resulting in yours truly. 1985, the year I was born. Six, the number of years that they endured before ending a toxic marriage. One, the number of people who finally asked what was going on at home. Eleven, how old I was when I moved from one parent to another. Three, the amount of teachers who rallied around me in court as I entered foster care. 567,000. The number of kids in care that year that I joined in 1999. 27. The amount of miles that those teachers drove each day to make sure that I could stay in the same school. Four. The amount of social workers I went through in a span of two years. 10. The amount of times I remember moving over a span of four years. 26, the age of my sister when she took me in when I was a junior in high school as my final foster home. One, the amount of time she grounded me. 9.5, my ACE score. Now that number, like many of the other ones, are out of my control. That number, 9.5, was stamped on my development without any warning. And the CDC defines an ACE score as adverse childhood experiences. It's a score that helps to tally the amount of traumatic events that a young person experiences in their first 18 years of life. The score goes from 0 to 10. And it also helps to implicate the potential long-term effects that that young person may experience as an adult in the areas of physical, social, spiritual, mental health, and well-being. So with that score, 9.5, completely out of my control, I am at a 4 to 12 times more likely chance to experience depression, alcoholism, suicide, disease, chronic health problems. I shouldn't be educated nor articulate. I should have had multiple babies by now, most likely from different relationships. And it's odd that I don't carry a criminal record or have any inpatient hospitalizations under my belt. But the most shocking statistic that I found when I learned of this ACE score is that because of that 9.5, there is a very high chance that I will die 20 years younger than my counterpart. Well, that's rude. So let's go back to numbers. 33, the number of years I've managed to stay alive, despite all of those odds listed before you. 4.0 my GPA in high school and college, two, the number of clinical degrees I hold in social work, 13, the number of years I have worked steadily as a social worker in the clinical field, zero, the amount of health problems I currently have. Last number, most important number, and it's why I'm here, is 25. That's the number of people in my village that helped to bring me here today. And I want to ask you to think about your village. So picture it. What street did you grow up on? What did your house look like? What'd your room look like? What'd you do for the holidays? Who disciplined you and how? Who got you ready for prom? Who moved you into your first apartment? Who would you call right now for advice? 
Because whether we like it or not, those images flashing before your eyes today have a lot to do with who you are right now in this moment. Your values, your attachment to others, your moral compass, your ability to trust the world, and most importantly, your sense of self. self. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Are you ready to level up the podcast for leaders, entrepreneurs, and business with your hosts, Jose Medina and Crystal Garcia? It's time to level up. And welcome to the Undeniable Level Up podcast, where we provide our listeners with life hacks in business, leveling up in your career, leveling up in your personal lives, and even leveling up in your relationships. Why strive to be average when you can be the best version of yourself with the tools, the tips, and sometimes with the tricks that we provide in our discussions? Last week, you heard from Alicia Naya in our episode titled Killing the Procrastinator in You. Alicia shared with us her tips and tricks and even some of her personal struggles. Today, we're here to talk to you about raising children and why it indeed does take a village to raise a child and how you as a parent can better equip your children for the battlefield of life and of being successful in that battlefield. Raising children can be one of the most rewarding experiences in life, but it can also be extremely, extremely challenging. Extremely, extremely, huh? Extremely. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. We've missed you all. So we've all heard it. It takes a village to raise a child, right? It's a proverb or a traditional saying that has taken on, you know, the meaning that it takes an entire community of people to, to gain experience and really grow. National Public Radio had done some research on the origins, went back to African cultures, and there's several different proverbs found throughout various cultures that, you know, roughly mean the same thing. So what do you gather from this? Do you agree? think it takes a village to raise a child? Yeah, and I can see why it would start somewhere in Africa, because they had villages, you know? Because <laughs> they had what? Villages. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Makes sense. Um, it still takes a village, I think. And even though our villages look different, the concept is still the same. You know what I'm saying? Like it takes your kid in, in the town that you live in or the village or, or the city or whatever, the community is going to be exposed to a lot of different things at work or at school, at play, in the, you know, outside with his friends. And even nowadays, even inside your home, online, social oh, yeah. media. That's and a those, whole nother, that's a yeah, whole, whole nother village, right? <laughs> Yeah, so, so I, I think if you change the mind of the village and just use that concept of the village and think about like all the different interactions, social interactions that children go through, like those are all like symbolic villages that have an influence on that kid and how that kid develops. So yeah, I do agree with it. That's really good. Before we even begin to talk about the village, um, I think it's important to understand the concept of the village first, and we kind of were just talking about it a little bit. So what is the village exactly? A village is just a network of people and institutions that surround us as we are exposed to that, that contribute to our growth and our development. And so I think we can all remember different points in our life when we were influenced or impacted differently, um, depending on the social circle that we were in and, and, and those involvements. Um, think of living in a town and never leaving it. That village that you're a part of would be the only one that assists in raising you. So without no outside interference, it'd only be that village, you know what I'm saying? And the people and the experiences within that village that would impact you into feeding into your experience and feeding into your knowledge and feeding into like who you are as a person as you grow up. Our psychological development includes our cognitive, emotional, intellectual, our social capabilities, and functioning beginning from infancy and continuing 
throughout our lifespan all the way into our old age. Our development is shaped by a multitude of factors that include our genetics, our environment, our social relationships, and experiences throughout our lives. Research this topic, and I'm sure you're going to find a plethora um, in each of these respective areas, all seeking to reveal and understand how we become uh, who we are, how we're shaped. Um, the field of epigenetics is a fascinating field that explores how behavioral and environmental influences impact expression of genes and influences our behavior and health. By recognizing the power of the village's impact on our genetic expression, we can better understand how we create a village where children thrive. Is this how you'd explain it, Crystal? Um, yes, but I actually want to share a personal story with you guys and kind of what prompted this episode and the realization that I came to and basically what this kind of truly meant. So, you know, as a parent, you want your children to be better than you and you want to prevent them from learning experiences or experiencing things the hard way, you know, such as the tough lessons or the speed bumps that you encountered along the way in your journey. So you make decisions to promote this in ways such as using what um, school district and neighborhood you live in. Now, I don't know any parent that wants to see their child in pain. In fact, it's quite excruciating for a parent, and you will certainly realize this as you hear this story. So recently, one of my children encountered a situation leading up to something that they had been working towards relentlessly. Now, when I say relentlessly, I mean they were so focused that no excuse Speared them off their path. I watched my child, tired, not feeling well, physically and mentally fatigued, push through and work so hard, like Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, or Danica Patrick. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, no one was outworking my child. This situation became extremely stressful and emotionally overwhelming to the point that I watched as my child's heart broke before that event even occurred. Now, I've never been a helicopter parent. And you'll learn this throughout, <laughs> throughout this episode. So I was self-reflecting and trying my best to kind of view the situation from different perspectives because my child was hurting and it didn't feel good for me. Obviously, it didn't feel good for my child. So my child is ex extremely mature and this was really for my child to deal with, not for me to swoop in and handle it. So as hard as this sounds or as bad as this sounds, this wasn't the worst part. The worst part occurred the day of the event when I watched my child's heart ripped right out of their chest, again, right before me. So as you might expect, the result of the event was unsuccessful, but certainly not one that was earned or deserved. Now, while my child was expecting support from loved ones for such a big event, they didn't get it and it came as a large blow and a very painful consequence. In this moment, my heart shattered. Now, to top things off, I'm an empath. So I didn't just watch all of this. I felt it all. I became so emotional that I had to go to the bathroom and actually had my fist over my mouth. And I don't cry often, but I watched the largest crocodile tears fall from my eyes, in silence, of course, to the floor at my feet, you know, in the bathroom stall that I was in. and. In this moment, I wasn't feeling like me. I was feeling really emotionally scattered. That whole, you know, be strong for your child. Yeah, <laughs> I was definitely struggling there. And I realized in that moment that my child needed support and more importantly, their heart to be victorious. And it wasn't possible without a heart. Makes sense, right? I would have without question 
replace theirs with mine. Now, in this moment, this event was completely insignificant to me as my child's life was more important. Naturally, I was experiencing a flood of emotions that included anger. I wanted to unleash the tsunami that you get if you hurt somebody that I love. But I had to pull myself together, give myself a pep talk, as did my husband, all still while I'm in the bathroom stall. Truth be told, this was not my battle. This was my child's. And regardless of how I felt, it was important that I empower my child as opposed to removing the power in that critical moment. And you know, as parents, that can be so hard because it's obviously not enjoyable to see, to see your child hurting or to see your child experience something difficult. You, you want to come in and comfort them and shield them and, you know, but you have to learn those lessons. While still sitting in the stall, my child messages me for backup and not to fight their battle, but to ensure that the battlefield was fair. I knew this was a significant emotional event for them and, mo- and a monumental moment. And trust me, I had pulled myself together, threw some water on my face, and walked out powerfully and pumped up. I was ready to engage and ready to skip some steps in the escalation of force if required. You know what, though? I experienced the most extraordinary moment I had ever experienced as a mom, and it was up close and personal. I watched my child step out to the line of the battlefield victoriously, retrieve their heart, dump their baggage out of their rucksack, And then with no hesitation whatsoever, draw their sword and raise it with a show of force and someone that you definitely don't want to come face to face with on the battlefield. I was so proud. I realized in that moment, as proud as I was, that my child didn't need my backup. (laughs) I didn't need it. But I was so proud to have witnessed it. And, you know, truthfully, it, it was in this moment that I suddenly realized that does take a village to raise a child. And I wanted to share it with all of you because I wish I knew it before I had my first child. I tell my, my youngest child all the time that she got the best version of me as a parent because when your first child's born, you make a lot of mistakes. And you know what? You're gonna, I'm sure you're going to make a lot of mistakes to the very end. We all do. And that's normal. <laughs> Except you. <laughs> You don't make mistakes. Perfect. (laughs) You're perfect. I wish that I would have had somebody to share tools with me that I could have used with my children. But, you know, here I am at 41 years old with six children, three stepchildren and two grandchildren. And if I have you guessing, I had my first child at 15. And though that's the age that you typically think that you know everything, right? Most certainly I didn't. So this is actually a key component to number one, of raising a successful child. Be deliberate about the village and the tents that you expose your children to. I actually picture a village as a bunch of tents. Think of the wild, wild west for a minute. Each tent represents a location where your children will draw their learning and be equipped for the battlefield, which is past a line that you cannot continue with them, and this is life. You're not always going to be there, and that's just the honest truth. So one tent may be for intellectual growth, such as school. Another tent may be for tool achievement, such as a sword, or a tent for successfully achieving conflict resolution. These are just a mere few and all equally important. The village is preparing your child for the battlefield, so remember that. 
So think of that as we continue throughout this podcast today and ask yourself, what village is my child or are my children in? Research has shown that many severe mental health disorders have a hereditary component, yet the environment and behavior such as improved diet, reduced stress, physical activity, and a positive mindset can determine whether this health condition ever even is expressed. That's a pretty big deal. That's a very big deal. What are your thoughts? I know it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to unpack. Story's touching, and I, and I know I know you were being deliberate in not sharing a lot of details in that in that explanation in that story. But a couple of things that stood out to me was you talk about preparing your kid for the battlefield of life, and in this moment, you saw that your child was going through something that was extremely difficult for your child. And so in that process, as all parents want to do, and, and I've seen this uh, as, you know, growing up when my kids were little, you want to be mama bear. You want to jump in mm-hmm. and you want to defend, you know, <laughs> you want to, you want to attack whatever is hurting your baby, you know? Sure. Yeah. But you also realized that you had raised a kid that was resilient, that was intelligent, that understood how to handle conflict, uh, that understood how to navigate emotions, how to control emotions and make make good decisions. I think that's what the whole experience of you sitting in the bathroom going through your brain saying, I want to go help my kid, but I know I already prepared her for this. You know what I'm saying? And right. I've got to let her, I've got to let my child fight their own fight. You know what right. I'm saying? And that's very hard for parents to do. And it takes a very strong and self-aware um, parent to be able to sit back and go, okay, my son is hurt, but my son can recover from this. My son knows how to be resilient. My son knows how to recover from this. My daughter knows how to handle this pain. My child knows how to handle uh, this experience in a way that's going to make them stronger. You know what I'm saying? And then Absolutely. being able to being able to come out and then witness it in real action, the emotion there is is really about feeling that you did the right thing. Like you've right. done the right things, you know what I'm saying? And you feel like, okay, I've prepared this child for life. You know, you haven't handicapped this child. This child is going to be successful no matter what, because they're demonstrating the things that you've taught. And I agree with the research. I think that um, it's important that you expose your kids deliberately to certain things. And your kids are going to be exposed indeliberately to a (laughs) lot of negative things. You know what I'm saying? Like drugs and alcohol and bullying and um, all that stuff, you know, uh, pornography and revenge porn. And like, you know what I'm saying? Like all, all those things, your kid will go through all those things and experience all those things as they're growing up. And if they don't know how to deal with it, then it makes it hard for them to overcome those challenges. It's going to come no matter what, whether you're, whether you're 15, whether you're 12, whether you're 32, whether you're 45, those things happen throughout life. And if you don't learn how to deal with them at the beginning, then how do you deal with them later on in life? So you've got to build that resiliency. I think it's important that parents realize that you're not perfect. As much as you'd like to think that you are, you pride yourself on your parenting skills, you can always improve, right? Absolutely, we all can. So um, I, I think it's important to have a little bit of grace with yourself when you're, when you're going through parenting because, man, you can have some struggles parenting. And you're going to have times where, where you're tearful or where you're angry or, you know, just where you're experiencing emotions at a level that maybe you've never experienced before. And just know that that's all normal. 
There's not anything wrong with you. Key component number two of raising a successful child is to be a good role model. This is crucial. And trust me, I know this can be hard, especially when you're a parent at, at a young age like you were. Uh, and you haven't even quite figured out who you are yet. You know what I'm saying? How do you exhibit those, those, those behaviors that you don't even realize your child is learning from you? Right. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the truth is that our children learn far more from what we do than what we say. While we can't always control what and who our children are exposed to, whether that be school, church, friends, whatever, anywhere really, we can control what we model for them. Sure. Uh, I read a book once that said, everything in life is a graded event. This statement resonates because you're always being observed by those around you, and in this case, your children. Um, and the, this book was really relating to the workplace and, and leadership and saying, like, when you're a leader, people are always looking to you to see how, what your behavior is, and then they're, right. they're copying that, they're mimicking it, right? Um, that's how we generally learn um, growing up. And in the absence of knowledge, you look around, you see what everybody else is doing, and you do that. Like, right. You know what I'm saying? It's got to be right, right? Everybody's doing it. And I think that kids learn the same way. And so you're always being graded. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes kids will see you make mistakes. And how you handle that mistake <laughs> will determine how that kid will handle their mistake. You know what I'm saying? So, sure. so if your kid is lying, <laughs> you got to ask yourself, where did he learn that behavior from? <laughs> like, you know, I swear I went to church on Sunday. <laughs> so... Research shows that children learn to imitate behavior by watching others. They imitate behavior based on the reinforcement those behaviors receive. So use this as an opportunity to model important lessons for the battlefield of life. I know we laugh at all the funny child TikToks we see, but be careful because laughter is an unintentional positive reinforcement. If you laugh at a behavior, children take that as being an acceptable behavior. Uh, and one that kind of stands out is the little kids. And, and I, I even did it when, the, when, I was, when I was a parent and, and my kid cussed for the first time. It's super cute. Right? It's like, oh, I can't believe he just it's said a It's a surprise. <laughs> yeah. And you kind of laugh about it. And then they say it again. You're like, don't say that. It's a bad word. Because, you, you know, the, the laughter of it is you lose the laughter after you realize that now you've got to teach the kid a lesson. And there's been plenty of times when I've corrected my child and then I turned around and laughed in private. Like, you right. know what I'm saying? Because you're surprised. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and I'll share a little story about one of my children uh, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was the same exact type of situation. So when my kids were very young, I would say like they were very, very young. I think um, my son was probably about maybe four or five. I don't even think he was in school yet. He wasn't but, 15. No, no. <laughs> My wife at the time, she had made pudding and she had put it inside the refrigerator. I got home or whatever and I opened the refrigerator. There's a handprint in the middle of the pudding. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm looking at it like, that's not intentional. That Obviously, somebody put their hand in there and grabbed a whole handful of pudding out. So, so I, I go to the living room. My kids are all upstairs and I'm like, hey, everybody get downstairs. And all three of my kids run downstairs and I line them up in a formation. And I'm looking at my son and he's covered in chocolate. <laughs> Right? I give them the opportunity to be truthful, right? So I'm like, one of you guys stuck your hand in the pudding and, and ate the pudding. And so I went to my oldest daughter and I said, was it you? And she said, no, dad, it was not me. And I went to my youngest daughter and I said, was it you? She says, no, dad, it wasn't me. I went to my son. I said, was it you? He was like, no, dad, it wasn't me. I said, go upstairs, <laughs> look, in the, look in the mirror, and then come back and tell me if it was you or not. And so he runs upstairs. He's there. He's gone for like a minute or two, and then he runs back downstairs. He's done cleaned everything up. He's like, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> I know it was you, buddy. 
But, you know, internally I was laughing because that was a really funny situation. But then I had to tell him, like, no, you don't do that. You don't go in the refrigerator without permission. You don't you don't put your hands and stuff. You don't eat things because you don't want your kid to get sick. You don't want your kid to get injured. You don't want him to eat something he's not supposed to eat. Like, you know, so part of that is is also understanding that whatever outward display that you have is going to reinforce that behavior. And if I just would have laughed and blown it off, he would have continued to do you would that, have thought it was funny. Yeah, you would have he, tried to get the and same it was okay. Yeah. It, he, uh, my dad says my my dad feels like this is okay. You know what I'm saying? So for sure, if you want your kids to be physically fit, show them that maybe uh, in a family activity. I know when I was growing up, I did that with my kids. You know, I was always working out, and uh, we were always going out and running and playing outside. And uh, um, when my son got old enough to go to the gym, he would go to the gym with me, and he would he would lift weights and whatnot. If you want your kids to do things that you want them to do as they grow up, you have to take them through that process and you have to teach that to them. And there's some things that I, I probably could have done better growing up with my children if I had known that my behavior is what they were watching and not what I was singing to them. Because there's a lot of times I made a lot of mistakes and I'm sure they've learned some bad habits from my mistakes. You know what I'm saying? That now I, I can't go back and change. It's already right. ingrained. It's already deep rooted. But it's important that if you're a young parent and, or you're, you're, you have young kids, but you understand that they're watching you and they're seeing what you're doing. And whatever you do, if you think that there's no consequence, there is a deeper consequence there. Do you think this is how you learn, Crystal? For sure. I actually have a couple of stories. I'll try to make them short. So first one is my middle son. I used to work 12 you hours. You have six kids. You don't have a middle son. <laughs> <I'm>, uh, <laughs> yeah, because I have three sons. So he's the oh, middle. Oh, okay, okay. Ah. <laughs> so my middle son, smart kid. And, you know, all kids, they like doing fun things and like receiving nice things. And they don't like to be bored, right? Well, I was working 12-hour shifts at night. And then I was also doing school in the morning. And I would fall asleep. So one day, I fell asleep in the house. And my kids pushed a chair up to the door, undid the chain, which they've never done before, right? So I didn't teach them this. Undid the chain, undid the deadbolt, undid the lock. He went to the pool and he went by himself. So like his sister didn't go with him. You know, his brother didn't go with him. Nobody went with him. They didn't want to get in trouble. And he went by himself. And at the time he actually had, um, they had these little swimsuits that had like an inner tube connected to them so that it didn't like slide up and down or whatever. And so I had one of those for all my kids. And um, he didn't even put that on. So. He just went out and he jumped in the pool. And obviously I wasn't there. I had fallen asleep. His his sisters and his brothers aren't there. So I end up, you know, getting a knock at my door and still asleep, by the way. And my daughter's like, hey, mom, somebody's at the door. And I said, okay. I go to the door. Is your child about this big? You know, yes. Is your child in the house? Jasmine. Is the child in the house? <laughs> no, mom. And I'm like, fudge, you know? She's like, he jumped in the pool. Somebody had to, had to grab him out of the pool. And, you know, they wanted to call Child Protective Services. And, man, I felt horrible. Because then you start thinking, you know, like, what if something would have happened? In that moment, like, I was upset and I was hurt because I was thinking, what if something would have happened? I would have felt so guilty. You know, I would have felt like it was my fault. But I realized something that, your children do watch you because I didn't have to teach them how to undo the chain or undo the deadbolt. They see you do it all the time, right? So after seeing you do it, now 
they can try to go do it because they've watched you do it so many times. So they do, they watch everything and you can't prevent that. So you just have to try to model the best behavior. And, you know, sometimes what you're teaching them is unintentional, even something as simple as how to get out of the door. So you just got to hide it like, like it's your pin. <laughs> like it's your pen. Yeah, you just cover it with your body and like make sure they're not looking so they never learn. <laughs> you know, what's funny is that um, later on, so like I said, I, I tell my youngest child all the time, you got the best version of a parent because I learned a lot of lessons before it came to you. So I had learned throughout the years, you know, the baby gates that you could put up that you like keep them from going down the hall or in the bathroom and you keep the door open or whatever. Yeah. So... At one point, I believed that they were ineffective. They were garbage. And it wasn't that they were garbage. It was that my kids had watched me lift up the bar and undo it. So they all knew how to do it. So they'd go over, they'd lift up the bar, the gate would be gone. Or they'd just climb over it, right? They saw an obstacle. They got over the obstacle, right? So by the time I got to my youngest kid, I realized you're not allowed to touch the gate. So when she would walk up to the gate, I would smack her hand. Not very hard, but like, hey, like letting her know. There's a consequence to touching the gate because I didn't want her to be on the other side of that gate. It, you know, it's funny, but you don't you don't realize that they're watching everything, but they are. They're they're watching absolutely everything. Do you think that you modeled the behavior that you wanted your kids to emulate? Um, Always? No, I don't think without so. fail. No, definitely not. <laughs> it, you know, even something as simple as because <laughs> let's be honest, when somebody falls, it's funny. I don't know why, but it's funny. And even something as simple as that, you know, like seeing somebody fall and and maybe they got hurt and you laugh initially just because it's, you know, like a knee jerk reaction. You know, even that, like you don't want your kids to think that it's okay when somebody gets hurt to laugh at them. And so even even something as simple as that. Key component number three for raising a successful child is display positivity and optimism. So positivity and optimism can help children navigate life's challenges with resilience and confidence. Positivity refers to our current state, while optimism refers to the outlook of future events. Research has shown that even in poverty-stricken areas, children who are exposed to positivity and optimism have better academic performance, stronger relationships, and greater career achievement. That's pretty awesome. So this is demonstrated in people like the comedian Kevin Hart. You know, these children are also better able to cope with stress and adversity and are more likely to have a sense of purpose and meaning in their lives. Oprah Winfrey once said, I know for sure that what we dwell on is who we become. She has openly talked about this and talked about how important positivity and optimism is for getting her through her tough childhood. So she was um, molested as a child. She was abused as a child. So help your children learn to reframe negative situations and focus on opportunities for growth and learning. Do you think that you display positivity and optimism? I think I try to. I don't believe that I always did, especially when my kids were little and like learning. Obviously, road rage is like (laughs) one of my Achilles heels. Yeah, it still (laughs) is. It's one of those things that you just don't even realize it. You know what I'm saying? So but you do it and your kids watch that. And so, you know, they, they mimic that same aggressive behavior when they drive. But then, you know, I watched my dad do it too. Like, you know. <laughs> you know, what's funny is, so my youngest child uh, made a lot of money off of the first word. So we had made a deal that every time you cursed, that it, I think it was like a quarter. 
It was like a dollar. So she'd be sitting, so she'd be sitting in the car, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. <laughs> she'd, yeah. be, she'd be racking up money. <laughs> yeah, we had to stop that deal. <laughs> I was going broke. You're going broke. So according to the University of Pennsylvania's research, grit is actually tied to both positivity and optimism as grit requires for you to have a clear and compelling vision of the future and the optimism to believe that you can achieve the vision through sustained effort and hard work to really get the future that you know that you want. And you can encourage grit in your children by helping them set goals and supporting them in their pursuit even when they're not your goals or even when they're not the goals that you want for them. And sometimes even when their goal, you know that they're not going to like it. So, yeah. you know, it's always important to model grit by persisting through things, you know, through your own challenges and main, trying to maintain, you know, a positive outlook. Are you going to maintain a positive outlook all the time? Maybe not. You know, it's hard to do. It's hard to be positive in difficult situations. It's not, it's not the easy route. But by doing so, you'll help your children develop the resilience and determination they need to succeed in life. And, and I think this is, um, this is an important conversation uh, about parenting because I think, think sometimes people get confused between grit and teaching kids to not quit, right? <laughs> it's funny. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Cause sometimes, sometimes what happens is you're like, well, I'm the, my kid started this and so they're going to finish it no matter what, no matter if they hate it, they started it, they got to finish it. And I think that teaches the wrong behavior because I think it teaches your child not to take risks, not to take chances, because the repercussions are so disastrous and they're so long term that you can't recover from it. So then you don't want to try nothing new because you don't. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't want to try something new because if I don't like it, I have to do it for the ten <laughs> next ten years. You know. So I think it's important. I think it's really important to allow your child to learn what they like and what they don't like, and then to say, okay, you signed up for this. I don't. I didn't think you were gonna like hockey. But you signed up for it knowing you couldn't ice skate, like, you know, so so you're going to try it and you're going to do it. And, and if the kid doesn't like it and they realize that early on, give them an out. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't force them to and, play hockey for the next four years. And honestly, their their passion might be something else. And what you're doing yeah. is, is you're eliminating the ability for them to pursue that passion for a longer period of time, you know. If you're like, hey, you know, you pick to do this and by picking to do this, you need to do it for the next 10 years, but their passion is something completely different, you're kind of setting them up, maybe not necessarily for failure, but you're not being supportive of what their passion is and you're not teaching them to take a risk. And if they're not getting what they want, if it's not what they want to change their course. Yeah. Then that same kid ends up getting in a marriage where he's not happy or she's not happy. And they don't want to leave the marriage because they were taught not to quit. And you know what I'm saying? But it's not a good environment for them. So it's it's one thing to teach a kid not to quit. And then it's another one to teach a kid to have grit. And grit is all about wanting to do it, but it being hard. You know, it's hard. I want to do it, but man, it's tough. But okay, just keep going. It's going to get easier. You know what right. I'm saying? As you build your strength, as you build your endurance, as you build the, the muscle memory, as you build the repetitiveness of the, the exercise, of the drill, of the whatever it is you're doing, you're going to get better. That's mm -hmm. where you teach grit. And you teach your kids not to quit. And, and the one way that you can do that is if, you, if a kid wants to do sports and they don't like hockey, for example, uh, you can give them a choice of other sports that they might want to try. Okay, you didn't like hockey. Well, you can either try basketball or you can try football. Which, which do you want to try next? You know what I'm saying? To try to find what you're passionate about. Or, hey, what is it that you want to do instead of hockey? 
maybe he doesn't want to do another sport. Maybe he wants to dance or maybe he wants to, I don't know, swim or, you know, whatever it is that he wants to do and then teach him grit in that activity, you know? Sure. Yeah. Key component number four of raising a successful child is don't transfer your burdens and your emotions onto your children. That's a huge one, um, a huge one. And, and this happens a lot when parents, especially when parents split up and peop, you know, parents go through a divorce and um, maybe the ex-wife or the ex-husband is using the child as a, as a weapon against yeah, the other parent. So yeah, and you have this little kid in the middle who has the burden of being weaponized or, or being um, the one who has to go with the parent that's sad or the parent that's always crying or the parent that, that can't get over the loss. And you know what I'm saying? Putting that burden on the child forces that child to feel those additional emotions. And sometimes it's not even intentional. Sometimes it's, yeah. you know, like kids pick up on emotions pretty easily, especially when they're yeah. close to you. And, you know, if your kid sees you sad and crying and you say, why are you sad and crying? And so then you just unleash everything. They're going to be worried about you naturally because they love you. Well, what you end up doing is you end up conditioning your child to be a caregiver. Because now the kid wants to help you. The kid wants to take care of you (laughs) all the time because they they feel like you need the help. You need to be taken care of um, because you're you're struggling. Your child is not your counselor. (laughs) You know? He or she is not your counselor, so don't unburden all your problems on your child. But on the flip side of that, it's important to teach your children how to have an emotion. And it's okay to say, dad's sad because dad went through something today. But it's going to be okay because dad's sad because he lost his job today. And, right. and dad doesn't know where he's going to find another job. You know what I'm saying? But, but don't, don't you worry. I've got that. You know? Right. Don't you, you don't need to worry about it. I'm taking care of that. You know, it's just not good to come home and say, um, you know, or, or to express anger and then not explain why you're angry. Like, because it's so confusing to a child. The child doesn't understand why you're angry. Right. If you come home angry and you don't tell the child, what, the child thinks you're angry at them. I know. You know, Are you angry at me. Did yeah. I do something? And if you don't believe that, watch the next time that your, your significant other is angry. Hey, what's wrong? Because you think you did something. You, did, you didn't take out the trash. You didn't wash the car. What did I not do that is making you mad at me? Like, oh, it's not you at all. I'm upset because, you know, my favorite TV show got canceled or whatever. Like, I think it's important. Yeah. Children are highly sensitive to emotional signals of those around them and can easily pick up on stress, anxiety, and other negative emotions. Children often do not have the emotional resources yet to handle their own issues in addition to the issues of their parents. This is like taking weight from your rucksack or your backpack and that you carry through life and placing it into their backpack. Research has shown that the psychological phenomenon known as emotional contagion is indeed accurate. You catch the emotional state of those around you. And if you're an empath, it's even worse. As parents, we should be finding our own sources of support and finding ways to manage our emotional states and not unpacking that on our kids. Don't unpack your your backpack or your rucksack through life on your journey into your child's backpack. The weight gets too heavy and too uncomfortable. When we model managing our own emotions in a healthy way, we're managing resiliency and coping, and this will result in our children developing the emotional intelligence along with those same coping strategies. Do you have experiences like this? Or have you ever had an experience like this? <laughs> well, yeah, I've definitely had 
few experiences with my kids throughout the years and you don't realize your impact you know and it's sad when you do it's sad when you realize your impact when you're displaying certain emotions in front of them especially if it's anger for somebody like if you have some feelings towards somebody or you have a a disconnect with somebody especially if it's a family member sharing that with them can can really make them uncomfortable because more than likely they love that family member right so now they're feeling like okay I'm in between two people who are who are fighting that I care about you know and they don't want to choose who's more important because they love you both you know and one thing that I've tried to be cuz cuz you're not going to always be able to hide your emotions you're just not and one thing that I've tried to do that I've gotten better at through the years is to explain when I'm feeling a certain way and to discuss it. So I don't just say, well, I'm mad at so-and-so because they did this, this, and this. I say, you know, I'm upset because it hurts me and this is why. And I don't think they intended it, you know, to be that way, but this is why it bothers me. And so I'm going to address it and I'm going to fix it. And I feel like that's better than just being upset and not explaining or unpacking your bag into their bag because if you don't deal with it it stays in your bag and you don't want to take that and put it in their bag have you ever felt like you transferred your emotions to any one of your kids like unintentionally i think so i would say probably my older kids matter of fact i would say probably my oldest son probably the most and you know it's really embarrassing as a parent you lose your cool and you say or do things that, again, that impact them. And we were discussing some things. And obviously, your kids don't know what happened years ago. And I got mad and I said some things. And, you know, my son's like, don't, don't talk about my dad. And what's unfortunate is that you can't take that back. <laughs> Once you've taken it and you put it in their bag, you know, they're responsible for taking it out of the bag now. You can't just go in and grab it like they have it. So. It's important, obviously, to try not to do it. And, you know, if if you have those experiences, you know, try to navigate that situation with your kids so that they understand at least, you know, hey, I shouldn't have put that on your, you know, I should I shouldn't have put that weight on you. I'm just upset and I'll work this out. I'll take care of this. And then that allows for them to take that out of their bag. Now they don't have the weight of how are you feeling? Are you okay? You know, I've got to help you. You know, if you do make a mistake, try to make it right. How do you balance that with also trying to be honest with your children and like be truthful? Well, I think that you have to gauge your children's maturity. And I'm a big believer that we as a society can place limitations on our our kids at any age. You know, um, I saw an article the other day where a nine-year-old graduated high school and somebody is going to say, He's too young to go to college. He's going to be around people who are 18 and 19 and 20 and whatever. And even uh, my youngest daughter, she's moved around so much. She tells me all the time she's been to 12 schools. So when we got to Texas and she looked at all of her classes and she looked at the requirements for Texas, she realized that in her junior year, she was taking all the classes she needed to graduate except one. So I went into the, to the school to talk to the counselor and I said, hey, is there any way that instead of her doing this elective that she doesn't need, that she can take this class? And I was so shocked 
And I guess I, I shouldn't be, but I was so shocked by her response because her response was, you realize that she's going to miss the whole senior experience and she's going to miss everything that they do senior year. And I don't think that the principal is going to approve that because that's a big deal. To who? <laughs> Who's that a big deal to? You know, um, that's a year that she could be working on her passion or, you know, that she could be starting college. And she even made the comment, you realize that she's going to be 17 when she starts college. So <laughs> what, what difference does that make? And so, so I think that you really have to gauge your children's maturity level. And the better job that you do at utilizing some of these things that we're giving you today, the better that they'll be at maturing. And maybe they're more advanced. Like I can tell you when my youngest daughter was probably like nine or 10, I could trust that if she went on a flight, that she would stay with the person that was supposed to stay with her and that she would get on the right plane. Now, transfer that over to my son when he was like 15, and I was so worried he was going to miss his flight, you know? But their level of, of what I had seen in their maturity was different, and sometimes that's going to be the case. So, girls, girls just naturally mature faster than boys anyway. Yeah, I think so. And who knows? Maybe that's a, maybe that's a myth. Maybe we make that up. But <laughs> uh, I think that... From my experience, what I've seen is typically daughters are just a little bit more mature than boys. Yeah. Boys are a little bit more rambunctious. They're they're still like, I don't know, in like a game stage at certain ages. Like I'm not saying all boys. I'm just right. saying, you know, the average boy. And so, you know, those are the things that I have tried throughout the years, obviously better later to take into account when sharing information, when you're when you want to be honest. And so I've told my kids before okay, listen, you're to the age now where I'll be completely honest with you. So ask whatever questions you want to ask and I'll be honest, I'll be truthful. And then you can follow up after that with any questions that you have, you know, but you can't do it at an age where they don't understand emotion and they don't understand how to address your emotion in theirs. Yeah. Or, or even the concept that you're talking about, like if you're right. talking about marriage, how does a four-year-old even understand <laughs> marriage? Like they, they don't understand the concept of marriage. Right. They don't even understand the concept of a relationship yet, you know? And what's sad is that sometimes, you know, you'll have one parent that'll say, so you split up and, and maybe there was major reasons why you split up, you know, something that a, that a four-year-old, five-year-old is not going to understand. And more, you know, more than likely they're not going to understand that. And so one parent says, oh, well, mommy didn't love me or daddy didn't love me anymore. And so then your child is feeling bad and they're like, but mommy or but daddy, why, why do you not love mommy or daddy anymore? You know? Yeah. And that's harmful to both parents because now the child's like, you're hurting and you're going to continue hurting until mommy and daddy are back together. And then the other parent who shared the information or the other parent who didn't share the information is stuck with, well, they're too young to hear the real story. You know, it's not that, you know, mommy didn't love daddy or daddy didn't love mommy. You know, this is the real reason. You can't tell right. them that, yeah. you know. Plus, it's really not true. It's just more complicated than that. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's not that I, don't, I didn't love you. It's that, you know, things happened. And, right. But you can't tell that to someone who doesn't understand relationships. Like, you yeah. know, they're, they're not matured enough to that level to be able to understand the concept of it. For sure. Key component number five for raising a successful child is to maintain an authoritative parenting style. Now, this parenting style directs children rationally 
by being positive and responsive to children's emotional needs, but also sets clear boundaries and expectations for their behavior. This parenting style actually creates a sense of structure and predictability, which translates into their feelings of security and their development of a strong sense of self-discipline. Research conducted by the University of California at Berkeley has shown that children of authoritative parents tend to have higher levels of academic achievement, better social skills, and lower rates of behavioral problems compared to children of parents of other styles. This is because authoritative parents provide children with the support and guidance needed to thrive, while also giving them the freedom to explore and learn from their mistakes. And I, I kind of want to stop and talk about this for a little bit because we're out of time. Because uh, <laughs> I, you know, I parents aren't going to understand. Obviously, I didn't understand what that means. And so, you know, I said earlier, I've never been a helicopter parent, so I am not going to do everything for you. And and first of all, when you have that many kids, it's impossible. Okay, you can't be a helicopter parent. When you have that many kids, it, you just can't. You will drive yourself absolutely nuts. So I was the parent who was like, the school calls and said, hey, your kid did, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, okay. So then I asked my kid, what did you do? I'm not the parent that says, oh, well, what? it must have been the other kid, you know, and you go up to the school and you kind of try to, to, to get involved or, you know, fight their battles. Or you're the parent who goes through their phone. Or you're the parent who goes through all the stuff in their room. I don't do that. I place trust in you. And if you violate that trust, there's a serious consequence, you know, that's going to last for a long time. So, and I explained that. Again, this wasn't something that I knew early on. This was something later. The more that, that you parent in that way, I think the more damage you do for your children progressing to the battlefield. So. You're, you're preventing them from, from getting certain tools and you're preventing them from learning certain behaviors that are very important to being able to be successful on the battlefield. Um, I think it's important to understand that authoritative parents is not extreme. Like, like, like we're not talking about like micromanaging your child right. or, or authority to the point where like your child has to say, yes, yes, sir, no, ma'am. And, you know, can't move without your permission. And, <laughs> There are some parents that are, that are super militant, right? Super militant to the point where your child is just terrified of doing the wrong thing. And that child never learns to make decisions because they're never given the option to make decisions. They're just dictated to, right? It's almost like in leadership. If you have a leader who's always telling you, do this and do it this way, do this and do it this way, you're never really empowering the people that you're leading to solve problems or to find, you know, find issues on their own or all they're doing is waiting for a command to execute. And then that's the employee that you can't promote to a certain level because they can't perform certain tasks on their own, which is required at certain levels. You can't do it because you haven't, you haven't learned how, but as a child, when you do it to a child, you take away their ability to problem solve. You take away their ability to uh, conduct conflict resolution. When you're too lax on the, on the flip side of that, when you're too laxed, and you provide no discipline for your children and you, you're like, oh, my kids are my friends and, and everybody's just <laughs> super happy. Then what happens is your kid has no boundaries, right? Right. And then what happens is that they, as they're trying to find their boundaries, they go over the limit on, on stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like now you're not going to bed when you're supposed to. So you're in school and you're falling asleep in class because you don't have a bedtime. You know what I'm saying? You don't have boundaries. Uh, yeah, you don't have boundaries. 
you go out with your friends. You don't come home until 10, 11, 1 o'clock in the morning. Like, you know, no one knows where you're at. You could, you're exposing yourself to unsafe situations. Like, there's, there's things that are negative and being too lax. I think it's important to understand that authoritative parenting is all about setting expectations for your children and then holding them accountable to those expectations and saying, hey, I expect for you to clean your room. It's your room. You don't need to come clean my room. You just need to clean yours. So, so because you live in that room, I expect for you to clean it. And if you don't, then these are the consequences of not doing what you're responsible for. Taking a shower, uh, doing your homework, those things. And, and you can't always be the parent that says, hey, did you do your homework? <gasps> you know, hey, sit down right now and do your homework. Like, your child needs the... Then they don't worry about forgetting. <clears throat> they know that you're going to remind them. Yeah. Yeah, they're not going to do it until you, until you tell them to do right. it. Like, well, my mom didn't tell me to do it, so I didn't do it. Um, but if your child knows that when they come home, they've got a routine, and this is the time of period when they do their homework, you know, and this is the consequence if that homework is not done when it's supposed to be, you don't have to tell the child to do their homework. You just say, bring me your homework. I need to check your homework. Oh, I haven't done it yet. Oh, but you were watching TV. You were outside playing. You were on your Xbox. Okay, well, guess what? Now there's no Xbox. Now there's no TV. Now there's no outside playing. You take those things away that, that the child enjoys. Um, and you go, when you learn to follow the plan, all those things will come back, you know? Um, I also think that parents sometimes make the mistake of making a threat and then not, not following through. Not following through. And so what that tells the kid is, well, I haven't reached the threshold mm-hmm. of being punished yet. The likelihood of this happening is Yeah, very it's low. unlikely. <laughs> so your kid is like a risk management manager. He's like, okay, so I actually cannot do my homework for three days before my mom can't take it anymore and mm-hmm. she beats me. Like, you know what I'm saying? So I won't, I'll skip for two days and on the third day I'll do my homework. Like, you know? So it's really important that as a parent that you don't make threats, that you don't plan on following through. Like you don't tell your kid, hey, if you don't do your homework, I'm going to murder you. Like you're not going to murder your child for not doing their homework, right? Mm-hmm. Or, hey, if you don't do your homework, you're going to sleep outside in the, in the yard tonight. Like, you know, if you don't clean your room, I'm going to put you in a tent out in the yard. You're not going to put your kid in a tent out in the yard. You're just not going to do it. So, so don't make that threat because when you can't follow through, this, the child starts to understand that it's all talk. There's, no, there's really no repercussions coming after that. You're not going to do it. You know, I got real upset with my son one time, um, and honestly, I don't even remember what. But I do remember telling him, if you want to be gangster, I'm going to drop you in the ghetto. So I dropped him off in a bad neighborhood. Guys, that was not smart. You know, that was not smart at all. And then guess what? Then I realized after I did it, first of all, how's he going to get home? Because he's far away from home. And he was maybe 15 at the time. And I can't let him sit out here all night. So, you know, I pull up to him. I'm like, get in the car. Now he doesn't want to get in the car. Now I'm like, fudge, you know, <laughs> I done yeah. messed up. You done gave away your power. Yep. Yeah. True. So, and I've been in that situation before, like where I told my son, hey, if you do this, I'm going to let you out and you're going to walk the rest of the way home. Knowing it's within walking distance. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I know it, it's, it's not that it's going to hurt him. It's going to just be an inconvenience for him. You know what I'm saying? But I can, I can follow through on that threat if he, you know what I'm saying? But I wouldn't say that if I'm like on an eight hour drive and we're like halfway through the drive and I'm like, hey, if you say one more word, I'm going to pull over and you're going to walk the rest of the way. He's not going to walk the rest of the four hour drive. 
And I'm not going to put them out that, that way. You know what I'm saying? I think it's really important to be careful when you're, when you're telling your kid what the consequence of an action is, that it's actionable and that you then follow through on that action. Because if you don't, you lose power. You, you give your kid the power that you should be holding on to yourself. Um, and the repercussion should always, should always match, match the, the infraction. Yeah. yeah. So you're not, you're not going to whip your kid because they, I don't know, left the cereal box on the counter. You're not getting a whooping for that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're going to take them through, an, take them through a, a relearning process. Hey, you got to put the cereal away. You know, it creates more work for your mom. She has a job. She's going to come home tired. Don't put it away. Like, you know, put it away. And I, I think that if the punishment doesn't match the infraction, then it feels personal. That's true. Yeah. Now it feels like, like you just don't like me. You have a problem with me. Or it just feels like you just like, you just like, you just like being me. on me. Yeah. You just <laughs> like being on me. You smacked me for no reason. I didn't even do anything. You know, I can re I can probably recall more whoopings that I got as a kid that I didn't deserve than the ones that I did deserve. I forget about the ones I deserve. I deserved it. I don't even think about those anymore. But the ones where I didn't deserve it, I feel like there was an injustice done. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I was, I was accused of a crime I didn't commit. So we know that, that, that justice is a high character trait. Of yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Key component number six of raising a successful child is empower your children to raise their sword. All right? And that really means empowering your kids to... Be strong enough to defend themselves. Parents, give your children the reins. Remember that you're preparing your child for the battlefield of life, and they're going to experience that life without you. You're not going to be there every day. Yes, you're going to be in their life as they mature and they become adults, but you're not going to be there to make those decisions for them. You're not going to be there to tell them, um, do this, don't do that, especially as they start their own families and they have their own children. Children of parents who allow them to take the lead are able to build independence and practice self-regulation skills. In fact, research performed by the National Academy of Sciences found that children exhibiting these skills went on to be healthier, have more money, not have substance abuse issues or criminal behavior. So back off and don't be a helicopter parent. Allow your child to figure things out without you so that they learn the ability to problem solve. They learn the ability to control their attention and or to manage their emotions. Limited skills in this area can create a much higher probability of children doing poor in school, having issues socially, doing drugs, or getting into trouble legally. Too much parental instruction or direction can backfire and cause a child to lose focus, according to a study led by Stafford University. Children with parents who stepped in to provide instructions frequently displayed more difficulty regulating their emotions later. Oftentimes, parents try to exert psychological control over their children. Psychological control is when you try to control a child's emotional state or their beliefs. Research conducted by the University of College of London revealed that children of parents exerting psychological control of their children had a lower mental well-being throughout their adulthood and that the effect is similar to the death of a close friend or relative. Who would want their children to experience that? Sad. Yeah, it is really sad. Instead, parents should maintain an authoritative parenting style that we spoke about earlier by directing their child rationally. That clear boundaries and expectations for the behavior, such as those that, you, that can be harmful, while also being positive and responsive to their emotional needs. It's absolutely okay to set a curfew, assign chores, and expect homework to be completed within a specific time frame. Research conducted by Harvard University on having children contribute to the household with chores, such as doing your own laundry or taking out the trash, results in the realization that they have to do work in life to be a part of life. Let's discuss this a little bit. What's your experience in this area, Crystal? 
Well, I definitely always haven't been been good at this. By not being that helicopter parent, I think I've I've learned to allow for my child to deal with things in a fashion where it's them dealing with it. And and I see that you empower them in that way. So if you and something simple, you know, like you could tell your kid, go clean the bathroom. Well, you don't have to tell your kid, use this solution, use this solution, wipe in this direction. Let them figure it out, you know, let them figure it out. Or have you seen two kids, you know, fighting, like two toddlers fighting? Have you ever seen two toddlers fight? And it's kind of funny to watch. And as long as they're not banging each other over the head with something dangerous, watch how they work it out. You know, typically they can work it out, even if one of them's, you know, doing their little fake cry, because sometimes they do fake cries. You know, watch, watch and see how they, how they approach that situation and direct them, guide them. You know? I think it's important to know that those are all teachable moments for children. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's important to, to then after that conflict to sit them down and coach them on what you saw, whether it was good or bad, um, to say, hey, I saw that you were having a hard time with that lawnmower. And I saw that you did this and did this and that right. was that you solved that very well, like reinforce that behavior with encouragement and say and, and even ask them, what did you learn? Hey, you were cutting the grass and I saw that you were going in zigzags. What did you learn <laughs> about that? You know what I'm saying? Because you had to cut it. You had to cut it again because you missed a bunch. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so, yeah. so what did you learn in that process? Um, as opposed to going and saying, hey, this is how you cut the grass. You cut it like this way. Then you come back the same way that, you know what I'm saying? Like, and taking the child's ability to figure it out. From the equation, when you find them doing something that's not correct or that could have been done differently or better than sitting that child down and going, okay, what did we learn? Why did you do it that way? What was your thought process? Why did you approach it from this? What were you thinking? You, you know what I'm saying? Not from a negative, like, what were you thinking? But more of a, like, how were you thinking about this problem that caused you to approach it from this angle and not from this other angle? You know what I'm saying? Because that will help the child understand that. There's more than one way to solve the problem. I can cut the grass diagonally. Uh, you know, I can cut it fast. I can cut it slow. I can cut it with the lawnmower. I can cut it with the scissors. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's so many different variables of cutting the grass. Why did you choose the one that you did? And what did you learn? And, right, and, and, and yeah, what did you learn from that? And how will, how will you handle it next time that you're told to cut the grass? You know? For sure. You know, we talk a lot about children being physically abused and how impactful that is. And we don't talk a lot about the emotional abuse or that psychological, you know, manipulation, that's very damaging. And, you know, I, I don't want for my children to have any kind of feeling that's similar to the death of a close friend or relative. You know, that's a very sad, low vibrational state to be in. And I don't want them to feel that way. Have you ever experienced something like that? Like, have you, are you, have you ever seen somebody else do that to a kid or like, like how does that look? Like, what does that, what does that present as? You know, honestly, I think I see it the most in parents who split up and I think they try to exert some kind of control and they do it in a, in a psychological manner, maybe telling them if you don't cook and clean, you're not going to be a good wife. Mm. If you don't spend X amount of time with your kids at home, you're not a good husband. Those are things that you might think that you're being a good parent. You might think that you're sharing with them, you know, like words of wisdom. Yeah. But you're not. And you're boxing them in. It really is what you're doing. And you're trying to get them to believe a certain set of, you know, right, of belief. What about you? In terms of psychological 
I don't think that I ever was like psychologically controlling of my kids. Like I didn't ever try to make them believe anything that, that I wanted them to believe. But I know that sometimes when parents are um, uber religious, like they can they can force that religion on their children and then use it as a way to to scare them to be good. Like you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like oh, you're going to go to hell. Yeah. Like hey, you're the devil. You know, <laughs> like, like you're the spawn of Satan. Um, and maybe he is. <laughs> he keeps climbing on the couch. He must be a spawn of Satan. <laughs> but I, I think that um, like we do that and then we use fear as a way to control children and fear. You can impart so much fear into children that it impacts how they develop as adults. That's true. You know, and then they it can actually, be fearful. You know, you're actually born without fear. Yeah. There's and, only two things that you're afraid of when you're born. Falling, you you have a natural reaction to falling, like your body responds mm-hmm. naturally, um, and loud sounds. If you really make a loud sound, a kid will like turn and react right. to that Even loud sound. Even a baby, that's yeah. true. Yeah, those are the two things that you're born with and being afraid of. But other than that, and I think those are just genetically coded for survival. You know what I'm saying? Like if you hear a roar, oh, that's a lion. Right. <laughs> I need to learn to crawl. <laughs> loud is bad. <laughs> yeah, you know. And and funny, you know, the funny thing is, is that. Well, and it's not funny, but when we're parenting, we don't realize that we're instilling these fears. Yeah. So when we're saying things like, if you get on that, you're going to break your arm, you know? So yeah. then they develop this fear of maybe heights or, you know, and that wasn't your intention. You wanted them to be safe. And so you thought that was a good way of having them be safe, Yeah. you know? Yeah, and I, I think there's there's an absolute there. Like, oh, if you climb on that tree, you're going to break your arm. I think there's there's an ap- absolute statement there that if a child takes it verbatim, like I can see that becoming a fear of heights. Like, oh, if I climb on a tree, I'm going to break my arm. But if you were to say, hey, there's a there's a possibility that if you climb on that tree, nothing will happen to you. But there's a possibility that you could fall off that tree. And if you do, the possibility that you could be fine. There's right. also a possibility that you could break an arm. Like, you, you can know. you can also instill a limited belief in them yeah by telling them certain things sure and that's hard to eliminate out of your system as you're getting older yeah do you think you were you had any limited beliefs instilled in you when you were a kid <laughs> yeah there's one that I, that I remember and my dad would feel bad to even know this but <laughs> Um, I'm gonna send this podcast. See? <laughs> I had a little dancing and singing group. I know that's hard to believe, <laughs> but uh, friends were all black. And when we were practicing dancing, my dad took me for us to practice dancing. And my dad said, "They have rhythm. You do not have any rhythm." Uh, <laughs> and so after that, I always thought I don't want to dance in front of people. Like I don't have any rhythm. And your parents says that and they don't even realize that what they're saying is damaging, you know, and that's something that can, that can sit with the child. You don't want them to have a limited belief, you know, Yeah. it doesn't look like you're putting in the same amount of work as them. That would be something better to say, you know, if, if you put in a little bit more work, then you're going to be, you're going to be the best dancer out of all three of you, or, you know, you guys are going to be dancing, you know, at the same level, what, you know, whatever it is, but instead of instilling that limited belief. Yeah, and it, it was also unintentionally negative as well. Like the statement was unintentionally negative. Like, right. like you can't or you don't <laughs> is a negative statement as opposed to saying, hey, you could probably do better. You know what I'm saying? Hey, you could do better. I think you could do better. If he would have said, 
hey, your, your dancing needs some work. I think you could do better. Let's put you in a dance class. Right. Like that would have been more uplifting and more like, oh, I can, I can improve. You right. know, my, my dad thinks I can do better than this. Like, you know, but I think as parents, we don't even realize it. We'll say things like, you run so slow. You're a slow <laughs> runner. Or like, hey, you're getting chubby. Like we do, we do little things like that, thinking that they're harmless words. But we don't understand the, the psychological impact on that child who hears that and goes, oh, I'm fat. You know what I'm saying? That's true, and then, and then sure. starts to think, oh, I can't. I'm just a fat person. I can't lose weight. Like, you know what I'm saying? As opposed to saying, hey, you've been eating unhealthy and we need to change your diet so that you can stay in good shape because I know that you love playing football and it's going to require you to. You know what I'm saying? Like there's there's positive ways to communicate that where it's it doesn't become this negative psychological like cage for your child, you know? Right. Yeah. True. It's, I think with my ex-wife, I think she experienced that young in her age when she was in school. I think some teacher told her she couldn't read or something like that when she was like, I don't know, like in kindergarten or first grade, somewhere young, really young, but it stuck with her. And it was such an impactful negative thing that the teacher said to her that it made her terrified to speak in public. And so, and she won't read in public at all like you know and it was such a limiting belief that it stopped her from like applying for like leadership roles because she didn't want to have to talk in front of a group or address uh you know a team or things like that so something that happened when she was in first or second grade has impacted her for 50 years yeah so 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 it's crazy yeah it is And, and those things are hard to pull out and eliminate like you know what i'm saying it's really hard 